Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to GP and author Dr. Ellen Welch. Ellen's latest book, Why Can't I See My GP? The Past, Present and Future of General Practice is published this month. The book starts with her own frustration at getting a GP appointment and moves on to look at the current state of general practice, why we've reached this point, and puts forward ideas on what needs to be done to address the problems. I talked to Ellen about the process of writing the book and why she chose this topic, what she learnt while writing it, and what she thinks needs to happen to address the current crisis facing general practice. The Doctors Association UK is sending a copy of the book to every MP and we also discuss what she hopes this will achieve. Before we move on, I just want to mention MIMS Learning Live Digital, which starts on the 11th of March. MIMS Learning is our sister website and education platform, which provides hundreds of online learning modules for GPs, nurses and other healthcare professionals. Between the 11th and 14th of March, MIMS Learning Live Digital will provide four evenings of free clinical webinars featuring expert speakers and live Q&As. Some of the topics being covered include elderly care, early cancer diagnosis and cardiology. To find out more and register for your free place, go to mimslearninglive.com. I'm really pleased to welcome onto the podcast now, Dr. Ellen Welch. Ellen is a GP and a past co-chair of the Doctors' Association UK. She's worked in various roles in the NHS and around the world over the past 20 years and is also a writer. Ellen has written for publications including The Guardian, The Independent, The Times, The BMJ and our very own GP Online. She's written four books since 2018, two about the history of the NHS and another about how the NHS coped with COVID. Her latest book, Why Can't I See My GP, is published this month and that's what she's here to talk about today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ellen. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your background? You know, why did you decide to become a doctor? Um, and more specifically, why did you decide to become a GP? So actually, I wanted to be a writer when I was young. I didn't think about this at the time, but obviously reflecting back on my career, there was a, an incident when I was a teenager. We went on a, a school trip with an intrepid teacher to India and one of the children on the trip died. And I remember when we got home, the newspapers wrote a lot of things about him which were not relevant and were not true. And it made me think, I don't really want to be a, a journalist and, and do this for my career. And then I, I, it obviously made me think about medicine. So that was why I, I became a doctor. I became a GP mainly because when I worked on cruise ships, I was dealing with the crew. So my background was emergency medicine. I started off doing AD training and then I, I went to work on cruise ships. And then when you're a doctor on a cruise ship, you look after the general health of the crew. And it made me realise, actually, I, I quite like this. And then I went back and retrained to be a GP. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I didn't know you'd done that. Do you still do quite a lot of stuff in general practice? I know you write a lot now as well, don't you? So now I worked on cruise ships on and off between 2008 and 2018. And in that time, I went back, I trained as a GP and I'd spend short contracts at sea. And I was a GP in London at that time. So I had a practice I always went back to. When I left ships in 2018, I started a family. Since then, I worked for GP out of hours. And then since having kids, I worked remotely. I've actually been doing remote GP work since 2019. (laughs) How did that happen? Five years. So yeah, I've been a remote locum GP part-time for that amount of time. That's all the things that that the press hate about GPs, but it suits me. It's allowed me to be flexible. I can work around my kids. Um, I do a mixture of e-consults and admin and the practices I work for are fab. They know that I work around my kids. So as long as I get the work done, it doesn't really matter when I do it. I think a lot of GPs are criticised for working like that, but we're still providing a service. We're getting through the, the immense amounts of admin that GPs have to, to do. And it, it's just it's just another way of working. 
So I mentioned you're here to talk about your latest book. We'll come on to talk specifically about that in a bit. But this isn't your first book. I mean, how did you get started in writing in the first place? And how did you come to write your first book? When I was at medical school at that time, you know how medical students can intercalate and then spend a year doing another degree alongside medicine. And there was a degree in medical journalism at that time. So I did that. So I spent a year doing a purely arts degree and I've got to be in medical journalism. And during that time, we did work experience. So I did work experience at Nursing Times. As part of that, I wrote an article about venous thromboembolism. And then I was approached by someone to write a book on that. It's a bit of a dry topic, but that was my first book based on the work experience and the article I wrote on that. There's people probably listening to this wondering what's the actual process of publishing a book like. So, you know, for example, with this latest book, how long does it take to get from starting to write it to it actually being published? How does that whole process work? I was approached by Callon, the publishers, in, at the end of 2021. And initially, they, they had envisaged a book about Nye Bevan, and they wanted me to write about uh, the Welsh connection. But at that time, I, I was doing a lot of work with the Doctors' Association about GPs, and we discussed making it about GP access and all the problems GPs are facing. So that was 2021. I submitted, well, the final draft at the beginning of January 2023. It was originally due to come out on the anniversary of the NHS, but I missed those deadlines. And then over the course of 2023, there was lots of to and fro in between myself and the publishers refining it. And I guess the final write was summer, autumn 2023. And then after that, it was tying things up with the publishers. So it is a long process. And sometimes that feels a bit, you worry that things are going to go out of date. And I did have to update all the stats because they obviously get updated every quarter. So yeah, it's quite a lengthy process. You make the decision that this is what you're going to write about, access to general practice, which is obviously something we write about all the time on GP Online. So once you decide to write something like that, where do you start? There's so many issues and challenges that face in general practice that feed into this problem. How did you work out what to focus on and what to look at? I think it's probably the work I was doing with the Doctors' Association. I joined DA UK in 2020 and we spent a lot of time writing letters to health secretaries, to NHS England, doing petitions and writing articles for yourselves. And I think that distills in your mind what the issues are. And as you say, there are many issues and it's often responding to what the press have been vocal about and it's trying to give the GP's point of view back. I think that's where I started. So I started with the issues that were relevant at the time, but also looking back on the history of general practice, because I think it was relevant to think about where we've developed from and how things have changed. And sometimes it is confusing trying to piece it all together. And I I learned an awful lot right in the history and just finding out what it used to be like and how we've come to be where we are today. It's not just your words in there, as it were, is it? Because the book is kind of made up. It also has contributions from sort of lots of other people with their perspective on things. Can you tell us a bit about some of the people who are in the book and why you asked those people to contribute? Well, I think that was important because I think just me writing a book about general practice isn't very credible. I think you do need to have lots of voices from lots of different people to share different experiences. And some of the people who have been involved are people who, I guess, have developed relationships with over the last few years in in doing this work with DUK. So there was contributions from people who have been almost a victim of some of the the negative narratives of the last few years. So Aman Amir is a GP whose practice in Merseyside was vandalised and he shared his story with with us. Also Chris Milligan, who is the husband of Gail, who's a GP who killed herself, he talks about that. And it's a mixture of of stories from from a lot of people. One of the things you do look at is the impact the pandemic had on general practice. I suppose for lots of people and for for the general public, maybe, I guess, in particular, they feel that things have really changed in general practice since the pandemic. I mean, obviously, 
all of us around it realised that there was a whole host of problems leading up to the pandemic that also contributed to it. What conclusions did you come to in the book about how the pandemic affected GPs and general practice? In all honesty, I think that was probably what prompted me to to want to write the book in the first place. Yeah, The headlines at the time were just contradicting what we knew to be the day-to-day reality of the job. And as I'm sure you're well aware, some sections of the media were painting GPs out to be closed, lazy, doing nothing at all. People still think that today. I was on Sky News today talking about the, the current stats, the workforce stats, and there was a comment on Twitter which I know is a bit of a cesspit, but someone commented on there, if you GPs just got back to work, then there wouldn't be so many people in A&E. And people still believe it. They still believe that that message. One of the ideas behind the book was to try and speak up and counteract the message, which is so hard when it's been drip fed over such a long period of time. I've had many colleagues who've got patients sitting in front of them doing a face-to-face appointment and the patient says, when are you going to open again? And how do you try and counteract that sort of kind of fixed health belief, which you know isn't true? How do you get that message across? So I guess that was one of the main reasons for doing the book and just to try and counteract some of the negativity against GPs that emerged during the pandemic. It hasn't really got much better, has it? I mean, like, do you not think that patients are starting to understand some of the pressures GPs are facing? It's so difficult. So the stats that were out recently, it shows GPs are seeing it's 1.4 million people per day, 32 million people per month compared to any who are seeing 2 million. And the stats kind of say it all. We are seeing more people than we did pre-pandemic. It's 20% more, I think, with 20% less real terms funding. But despite that, people still think, oh, no, they're shut, they're lazy, they're not doing anything. So this book is an attempt to show the stats, but also show the personal stories and to show that GPs are human beings too, and we're trying our best to prop up the service under very difficult conditions. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because there's a chapter in the book called What Does a GP Do in Today's Britain? And that's going to be quite eye-opening, I imagine, to lots of people who probably don't understand how the roles changed and what GPs actually do. It's a mix between facts and figures and personal testimonies. What were you trying to do with that, really? Was you trying to explain that GPs do a lot more than just seeing coughs and colds and people who walk in the door feeling a bit poorly? Exactly that, because I think why should the general public know what we do day to day? And I think you're right, there is an impression that GPs just see coughs and colds, but the job is so much more than that. And we're dealing with an aging population, complex problems, as well as the clinical work. There's there's all of the, the other side of things that people don't see. It's the day to day running of a business. It's the immense amount of admin. A lot of the workload that would get shifted from secondary care, we're trying to deal with that. But there's so much more going on. And I think people realise. We talk about this on the podcast a bit, but I mean, obviously, a lot of people don't really understand that things like the waiting list for hospital treatment, people see that as a problem for hospitals. But obviously, it's also a problem for general practice, because where are those people going if they, they're not being seen and they're still in pain or they're depressed because they can't work? That's work for, for GPs as well. Yeah. Definitely. One of the other things you look at in the book is general practice in other countries and ask whether it's actually better to be a GP elsewhere. Did you come to any conclusions about that? I mean, we know that people in Canada and Australia are really keen for British GPs to go and work there. But did you come to any conclusions about whether life would be better in other countries? Well, again, if we're looking at the stats, the GMC workforce report of 2022 showed that there was nearly 5,000 doctors who left the UK to work overseas people are going abroad and the stories that I've got in my book from GPs do say it's better. One of the contributors who had a practice in New Zealand talks about the fact that she saw no more than 24 patients per day. She had 15 minutes per patient. 
the contact between primary and secondary care was it was more seamless. They had access to hospital notes. It, it just made things a lot more straightforward. And on top of that, I get adverts from recruitment companies almost weekly offering me three times the salary in beautiful sunny Australia with a nice lifestyle. And there's obviously going to be problems there too. But the fact that there's 5,000 doctors in 2022 going abroad shows that there's obviously we're doing something wrong here. The book is not just about the sort of challenges and problems. You kind of look at the future as well and you ask what needs to happen to change. One of the things I did want to ask that is in that book, you also look at whether allied health professionals are the answer to the problems, because obviously one of the big things we've seen in England in particular is the expansion of use of additional roles. Given the debate that's raging around the use of physicians associates, I mean, do you think that is one of the solutions to the problem or not? What conclusion did you draw on that? It's a difficult one. Obviously, we haven't got enough GPs, so people are looking for solutions. But right now, we've got locum GPs who are out of work that practices cannot afford to employ because they haven't got money to employ them. Surely it's better to have a fully trained GP seeing patients than someone like a PA who, who does a two-year degree and just doesn't have the same level of experience. It's obviously cheaper to do that, but surely building up problems for the future, it's not a solution. We need to train more GPs and have more GPs in general practice. Do you think funding is really a big issue that needs to be addressed? Because obviously the share of funding going to general practice is falling compared to what's going into secondary care. And also we know that the current offer on the table is quite a very small uplift for next year. But do you think funding is a really big part of the problem? Oh, definitely. But people roll their eyes when you mention funding in the NHS and it's not a bottomless Mm. pit. But the proportion of funding that GPs get is tiny compared to secondary care. And we need to invest in primary care because it does hold the rest of the system together. And it is often said that, and it's true, that if we don't invest in the service, we're, we're going to go the same way as NHS dentistry and it's going to crumble and lead the way to a privatised system, which not everyone's going to be able to afford. And it, it's, we do need to invest in the service if we want it to work properly. Yeah, so the book also has got a, like a list of action points and things that could change with points for what the government can do, what GP and NHS leaders can do and what patients can do. You know, there's so many problems and challenges, which we talk about all the time. So if you were the health and social care secretary, where would you start? What two or three things do you think are the most important that need to be addressed? Investment. It needs money to be able to function properly. But a big thing is technology. And it's so disjointed, as we know. And a lot of the workload shifts that we get from secondary care to primary care could be made better with better technology. So if secondary care had access to the GP notes or if they could do electronic prescriptions to the community without asking the GP to do it and having delays of sometimes weeks before the patient gets their medication. It's not easy. I know there's been many failed attempts to coordinate the IT, but that would make such a difference, I think, if that could be improved. So IT, money, valuing the staff. And again, if you look at the, the most successful businesses they look after their staff and they really do. And it's been said before, but the, the biggest asset and the biggest resource the NHS has is its staff. And at the minute, it feels like the staff has not been valued. They're just being asked to work more. They're burning out. I think we do need to look at valuing the staff and, and then the rest of it will look after itself to some extent. What about patients? Do you think there should be more emphasis on patients being healthier, living healthier lives? Or do you think it should be more of a focus on maybe preventative medicine to start with prevention all of that is great i think generally educating people about lifestyle and 
how to use the NHS. I've said before that many staff in the NHS that find it difficult to navigate. If that was part of the NHS curriculum to tell people how it works, where to go for help, self-care, that would be a start. But we can't blame patients it's for the way the system is. People are always going to seek advice from doctors. We're trained for years for a reason. And this is bread and butter to us and we can't always expect patients to know what we know but yeah a start at least trying to maybe put things like the NHS on the curriculum may just help a little bit but I know it's not going to solve all the problems of the NHS but there is something we can all do I think as patients as well as doctors thinking there's always a danger that you're blaming patients it's not about blaming patients but it's thinking that there are certain things as patients that we, we can do. So it's just knowing how the system works, meeting the expectations of patients about what the service can provide. So, for example, I had a friend the other day who was a bit grumpy with his GP because he'd gone to ask about malaria tablets and the GP had quite appropriately signposted them to the pharmacy. And he was getting quite grumpy about the fact the GP hadn't prescribed them. And the GPs aren't funded for that work, but how how are they supposed to know that? And it's just trying to tell the public what GPs do provide and what they don't and where you can get the help you need. And it's so different in different parts of the country that what might be the way it works in one part of the country is different in another part of the country. And then it is, it's totally confusing. <laughs> yeah, that, that is very true. And um, one of the things you've mentioned a couple of times while we've been talking is about your involvement with Doctors Association UK. Why did you actually choose to get involved with them? What was it about DA UK that struck a chord with you? It was during the pandemic and I was working from home and one small child and I was pregnant and feeling a bit useless in all honesty, thinking, oh, my colleagues are doing their best to fight this pandemic. And I was still working remotely, but I felt the need to do something to help. And I've mentioned before my writing, that's something that, that I can do. And it was something that I could do from home to help, basically. And they were advertising at that time for an editorial team. So I, I applied and then have been involved ever since. Are you still involved with them now? Do you still do stuff with them now? Well, I took a break because it is voluntary. And <laughs> in all honesty, it became like a full-time job. It depends on doctors doing it alongside their normal jobs. And it's just such a good team of people. It's people who actually care about what's going on in the NHS and fighting for doctors and essentially patients in the NHS. And we all do it alongside our jobs on a voluntary basis. But it does take its toll. And I think listening to the wars of the NHS on repeat does make you burn out a bit. And I think I burnt out. So I've took, I took the air off this year, but I've gone back recently because they are sending a copy of my book to every MP and every integrated care board chair. And the hope is that MPs can read it. And instead of reading a stuffy formal report about statistics, it's the stories from GPs. And the hope is they read it and prioritise general practice in their manifestos. Do you think MPs politicians based on you know your experiences do you think they understand enough about the problems in general practice no not at all and I think it's very telling that most of our health secretaries haven't visited a general practice they do lots of visits to hospitals but I don't know the latest but during the pandemic for sure Matt Hancock didn't really visit any general practices and, and it's so important I think they need to speak to their local medical committees they need to speak to the, the, the local surgeries because as we said before general practice is different in different parts of the country and the issues in central London may be different from those in the Yorkshire Dales and, and it is important that they understand 
what GPs in their local area need to function properly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously everywhere's struggling to recruit GPs or having enough GPs, but some areas are so much more badly affected by that problem than others, aren't they? And that's one of the things I've been able to do in my job because I, I've, some of the remote sessions I do are for practices in remote Cumbria that have struggled to recruit. And that's one of the things that working remotely has, has enabled me to do to offer some help to those practices. So what's the, the one message you would like MPs and maybe people more generally to take from the book? What's the key thing you'd like them to understand when they think about general practice as it is right now in 2024? I mentioned in the book quite a lot. There's another book I'm sure you're aware called A Fortunate Woman by Polly Morland. And it's a lovely story about the general practice. And one of the, the quotes from that book is that a GP is a person, not a service. And I think it's important to remember that as we get all tied up in how bad the system is, how much of a struggle it is for everybody. Behind all of this, we've got a GP who, who is a person who is getting burnt out and listening to all of the, the woes of the NHS while working as hard as they can to prop the service up. I do think we need to remember that. And, and as I said before, invest in the staff. It will go a long way to improving the service. The NHS has been propped up on the goodwill of its staff for many years. And I'm not saying that we should continue to do hours of unpaid overtime, but if you treat your staff well, they will want to, to put themselves into their work and, and do their best. So I think we need to remember that. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Alan for taking the time to speak with me. You can find a link to her book in the description for this episode. I'll be back next week for our regular news review. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com.